right, good morning, everybody. So glad to see you this morning. Do you have your Bible with you? 2 Kings chapter 5 is where you need to go. If you don't have a Bible with you, hope you'll find one. Open up to 2 Kings chapter 5 so that we can follow along as we study God's Word together today. Last week, we looked at the story of the miraculous healing of a leper named Naaman. Naaman, who was general of the Aramean army. Some translations say the Syrian army, Aram, Syria, same thing. I argued that the story about his healing was much more than about merely his healing. It was actually the story of Naaman's conversion. We see this clearly in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 15, which is where we will pick up today as we study. But even beyond that, I argue that Naaman's conversion story is a great picture of every man's conversion story. And as such, this story has much to teach us about what it looks like to have your life changed by the gospel, by the grace of God, through the Lord Jesus Christ. We drew five applications from the text last week. First one was most important and kind of the biggest kind of umbrella statement of the whole week is that God pursues all kinds of people. That the one true living God is a global God with a global mission to save a people for himself. Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation redeemed by the blood of Jesus. It's not just about a localized God. God of the Bible is not a local God restricted to Israel or restricted to Harrisburg or something like that. A global God with a global mission to save a people for himself. We saw in the text something about the depravity of man. How every man is in need of a savior. Whether you've got a position or whether you don't have a position. Whether people look up to you or whether they look down upon you. There is a need in the life of every person for a savior. And that savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about evangelism last week, particularly as we looked at that little Israelite slave girl who was faithful to tell her master about the prophet in Israel who could heal her, heal him of his leprosy. We talked about the importance of being useful for the kingdom of God despite our circumstances, to be compassionate toward the people around us despite our mistreatment by them. That little girl, no one would have blamed that little girl if she had never said a word about a prophet in Israel who could heal her master. No no one would have blamed that little girl if she had just watched him wither away and die. But in her difficult circumstance, she spoke words of hope, and we must do the same. We saw in Naaman something about the pride that's in all of us and our natural resistance to the message of grace. Some of us, even in this room, struggle with that on a daily basis. To, To receive salvation as a free gift just doesn't seem to jive with how we think the world operates. And yet the gospel is, is a gift. Uh, grace is free. And we're going to talk about that a lot today. And then finally we said, yet again, that we must turn to the Lord in our time of need. And we do that ultimately by repentance and faith. We turn away from our sins and we put our trust, our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who he is and what he has done for us on the cross. Well, moving on from last week to today's text... If I were to ask you to give your testimony, to write out the story of your own conversion experience, you would need to include at least three things in that story. Number one, you would need to talk about your pre-conversion experience. In other words, you need to answer the question, what was life like before you met Jesus? Secondly, you need to talk about your conversion experience. In other words, what was it like when you met Jesus? Tell me about that life-changing experience that you had with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, you would need to talk about your post-conversion experience. To answer the question, how has your life changed since you came 
to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in the text last week, we saw parts one and two of Naaman's story. We saw his pre-conversion experience. We saw all of this about his life as the Syrian general. We saw all of this pride and, and arrogance in him as the story unfolded. We saw his conversion experience, how he came to know the God, the one true living God. And this week, we're going to see part three. We're going to see part three of his story. And let me tell you that part three is super important. That story about your post-conversion experience is absolutely important. There are too many people within the church that can easily, very easily, write and speak about part one. There are a lot of folks in the church that have no problem recalling their pre-conversion experience. They can talk about what their life used to be like. And most folks have really no problem talking about what it was like when they came to know Jesus. A lot of folks can take you right back to the time and place. They can recall what they were wearing and what the preacher was talking about. They can, they can, it's almost like they can relive part two. But my fear and what concerns me is that so many people have so little to say about part three. Have so little to say about how their life has actually changed since they came to know Jesus about how they've been growing in their faith, about what they know about God now that they didn't know then, about the ways they're serving Him now that they didn't serve Him then, about the ways they are sacrificing now that they didn't then. And I fear that some people have so little to say about part three because their life has never really changed. It's never really changed at all. And so today is, is going to be a difficult message to preach. I hope that today will encourage those of you who need to be encouraged. There are no doubt some of you who are going to be like that. That's what my life looks like. Uh, my life has radically changed, and I am giving my life to serve the Lord Jesus Christ now, and I wasn't then. I hope this text also will challenge and convict those who need challenge and conviction. Some of you may, this may be hard to hear today, that, that maybe you've got part one and part two, but no growth. No progress, no moving forward since then. Perhaps today, uh, Naaman's story or Gehazi's story, as we see it unfold, will challenge you. I'm encouraged by this text in Isaiah 55 as I approach this text today and as I preach it to you. Isaiah 55, starting in verse 10, says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so my word, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. It's a good promise for a preacher that when we deliver God's word, it will accomplish what he sent it out to accomplish. There's no doubt about that. And for some of you, it will accomplish encouragement today. And for some of you, it will accomplish challenge and conviction today. But it will accomplish something as we preach it this morning. So let's read together 2 Kings chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 15 through 27. A lot of ground covered again this week. 2 Kings chapter 5 verse 15. God's word says, When he returned to the man of God with all his company, and came and stood before him, he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives, behold, who, before whom I stand, I will take nothing. 
And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Naaman said, if not, please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offering, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes to the house of Rimon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. So he departed from him some distance. Verse 20 says, but Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, behold, my master has spared Naaman the Aramean by not receiving from his hands what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw one running after him, he came down from the chariot to meet him and said, is all well? He said, all is well. My master has sent me, saying, Behold, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets came to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give me a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. Naaman said, Be pleased to take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags and two changes of clothes and gave them to two of his servants, and they carried them before him. When he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and deposited them in the house, and he sent them in away, and they departed. But, but he went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. Then he said to him, Did not my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper, as white as snow. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together with our brothers and sisters, ultimately to meet with you, our great Father. It's good to be here it's good to unite our voices in singing praises to you. It's good to unite our hearts in prayer and to sit together under your word, to hear your word and be changed by your word. Thank you for speaking to us in your word, for ensuring the transmission of your word over thousands of years so that we can have it today, so that we can hear from you today. We trust that your word will accomplish exactly what you intend for it to accomplish today. In fact, we submit ourselves to your word, to your plan, to your desires today. We pray that you would teach us, mold us, change us, that you would have your way with us today, for we are yours. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the way we're going to approach this today is we're going to look, there are two parts of the story, right? There's the part about Naaman. Um, and, and his kind of interaction with Elisha after his conversion. And then there's the story of Gehazi. And those two things are in stark contrast. So what we're going to do is we're going to look closely at the part about Naaman. Well, kind of verse by verse, walk through it, because there's really important things for us to learn there. And then we're going to deal with the part about Gehazi kind of as one big story. And there's a big important lesson for us, particularly church folk, um, there is a big lesson for us in that text. So let's look at verse 15 first. Verse 15 says, When he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. 
So many things that mark true conversion in this verse. Even in this one verse. So many marks of real conversion. First thing is this. Naaman returns to the man of God. He returns to the man of God. He doesn't just go to the Jordan, dip himself seven times, be cleansed of his leprosy, and say, that's awesome, and head back to Syria. No, his heart has changed, and so he feels compelled to return to the man of God to say thank you, right? Remember the story that Cooper read just a little while ago in Luke chapter 17, where Jesus healed ten lepers, ten guys in the same situation as Naaman, but only one of those men came back to give him glory for it. And if you remember, one of, the, one of the interesting twists in that story is that dude was a Samaritan. He was an outsider, and yet he recognizes this gift that has been given and praises God for that gift. The others just went on their way. Naaman marks his true conversion by returning to the man of God. Secondly, notice in the text that all of this happens with his whole entourage as a witness. It didn't happen off in a corner somewhere. Naaman makes a very public profession of faith here. He doesn't make a private profession of faith. He doesn't go off with just Elisha and say, now I know that there's only one true God and he's in Israel. He says it in front of his entire entourage who are no doubt going to travel back with him to Syria. It's a public profession of faith. We need to make a public profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Third, notice that he now knows some things. Last week, I talked to you about how Naaman uh, was all frustrated when Elisha didn't do what he thought he was going to do. Do you remember that? Uh, Elisha just sends his servant out and says, hey, go wash seven times in the Jordan and you'll be cleansed. And, And Naaman is furious at that. He says, I thought, I thought that the man of God would come out, that he would wave his hands, that he would call on the name of the Lord his God, and then the leper would be healed. I thought it was going to work one way, and it worked a totally different way. And now he knows Now in the text, he knows how the Lord works. And notice that his profession, what he knows, is exclusive faith in Yahweh. He does not say, now I know that there is a God in Israel, along with all the other gods of all the other places. It's not what he says. He says, now I know that there is a God in Israel, and only there. That the God of Israel, the God that he has met through what has happened with Elisha and this healing, is the only God. That is, a, that is a dynamite statement as he declares monotheistic faith in the one true living God. Fourth, he wants to offer a gift in response to what he has received. And we could talk about this a lot because there are two ways to go with it. Maybe this is a mark of his continued misunderstanding of grace. Maybe he thinks he needs to pay Elisha for what he has received. And if that's the case, this is one more example of many that we're going to see in the text where this guy needs to grow. He needs to grow up. He needs to mature in the faith and come to a deeper understanding of how God's grace works. You're going to see that several times, but I don't think that's what's going on right here. I think this is a heartfelt offering of gratitude. I don't think his intention is to try to pay for the the healing that he has received. I think what we're seeing is this guy's heart has been radically transformed, and he just wants to say thanks. It's part of why we sing that last song. What could I do? I've, I've, I've received all of this grace from God. What could I do except offer my whole self to you, Lord? And this seems to be Naaman's way of doing that. He's got like $2.1 million worth of gold and silver with him, not to mention all these changes of clothes, and he's like, I'll give it all. 
I'll give it all to the Lord as an offering. I think it's a heartfelt offering of gratitude. Bottom line, in this first verse, here's what we see. This is huge. Here's a foreigner who was an outsider, powerful, full of himself, arrogant, proud, and yet he has experienced God's power and grace, and he responds in faith. And we're going to keep seeing him respond in faith. We're going to keep seeing that this guy is a man of faith. Look at verse 16. It's super important. Verse 16 says, But he, that's Elisha, said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. If you're an underliner, highlighter, underline, highlight, as the Lord lives. That basically Elisha is invoking the name of God in his refusal of this gift. Now, Elisha has received gifts before with gladness. It's not as if Elisha always refuses gifts. He's received them before with gladness. Remember the Shunammite woman and her generosity to build him up room and to give him food, which he receives with gladness? Remember the the dude from Baal, Shalashashar, something like that, who shows up with this bread and the corn to give to him? He receives that with gladness. But here, he makes an adamant refusal of it, and here's why. He wants Naaman to know about the free grace of God. And he's not going to allow anything to to stand in the way of that. He wants Naaman to know that what he has received, not just the healing, but the new life that he has received, he wants Naaman to know that that's a free gift from God. And he doesn't want anything to stand in the way of that. And that's part of why he gets so upset with Gehazi when he goes and gets something from Naaman later on in the story. God's grace, friends, is free. One of our favorite verses in the New Testament is Romans chapter 6, a great gospel verse. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 that says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's good gospel stuff, right? What you have earned as a wage for your sin is death. Spiritual death, physical death, separation from God for all of eternity, that's what you have earned. And the good news is, of the gospel is that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am so thankful that eternal life is not a wage that we earn, but it is a gift that we are given freely. And, and Elisha is wanting to go to great lengths to make sure that Naaman understands that this new life is a free gift. It seems that Naaman here is making a genuine offer a genuine offer to give this gift to Elisha because he repeats it twice. He makes the offer twice. Now, the cultural norms of the day would say that that you're basically required to offer it once. Um, That's kind of the dance that they always dance. Someone would say, hey, let me offer you this thing, and you would refuse it, and they would say, good, I I was hoping that's the way it would go, and now I'll go about my, my day. But Naaman really seems to want to give this to Elisha because he says it again, and Elisha adamantly refuses it again. It seems to be a genuine offer, but Elisha refuses the gift. And I want you to remember, it was a huge gift he was offering. It wasn't like, hey, I've got to, hey, thanks, thanks for what you've done for me. Here's enough to buy lunch today. No, it's $2.1 million in, in modern currency, $2.1 million plus an entire wardrobe of clothes that would have been extremely valuable as well. It was a huge gift that, that Naaman is offering to Elisha, but Elisha refuses it. He doesn't want anything from this man because he wants the man simply to be the recipient of God's gracious gift. Arthur Pink says this about it. He says, God delights in being the giver. 
If you wish to please him, continue coming before him as a receiver. God delights in being the giver. He does not delight in transactional relationship. He does not delight in this, I'll give you this if you'll give me that. He delights in giving out of abundance of his grace. And so if you want to please him, Pink says, continue to come before him as the receiver of much grace. That's good stuff, right? Look at verse 17. Verse 17 gives us deep insight into Naaman's heart. And it crosses all cultural expectations. Remember, Naaman is a guy from the outside who showed up in all of his pomp and all of his pride. And he was humbled, right, by Elisha. And he was given a great gift by Elisha. He then tries to give a gift in return, which seems to make sense. And now what he does is he asks for something. That's craziness. That's craziness from a cultural expectation in the Middle East. That he would receive a gift, try to give a gift, get refused, and then say, can you give me something else? He is asking for something more from Elisha. This is bold. He asks for these uh, two mules load of dirt. And that is so that he can go back to Syria and worship Yahweh when he gets back there. He wants to, the text says, build an altar there so he can make sacrifices for his sins. So that he can make sacrifices no longer, no longer to the pagan gods he used to serve, but he can make sacrifices to the one true and living God. He wants this earth so that he can worship. Now, I will admit that it's a little messy here. It's not perfect. As he makes this request, he is not a priest And likely there aren't any descendants of Aaron or Levi around to do official, sanctioned uh, synagogue type work, offer these kind of sacrifices. My point is this, it's not exactly as it should be, but his heart is absolutely in the right place in his desire to worship God who has changed his life, to worship the God who has changed his life. He wants to do the right thing. And he declares that his intention is to worship Yahweh alone as God. This is to be celebrated. Here is a pagan foreigner who has had his whole life turned upside down and is giving himself now to the worship of the one true and living God. It's a little bit messy. It's not exactly ideal, but he's wanting to pursue worship of God. Verse 18 and 19 are even more tricky and more messy than verse 17. In fact, we brought Matt O into the discussion this week in order to give us some insight, especially because he deals with recent converts to Christianity from Islam. You know, he lives in a Muslim culture, and people are coming to faith in Jesus in the midst of that culture, and, and it's messy there. It's messy. How, how do I, how do, what, what do I do with Ramadan now? Now that I'm a Christian, what do I do with Ramadan? Do I fast? Do I not fast? What about my family who expects me to show up at these festivals and do these certain things? How do I, how do I navigate that? That's part of what uh, Naaman is struggling with in verse 18 and 19. Evidently, part of his job in Syria was to accompany his master, who, by the way, was the king of Syria, into the temple of Rimon, who is a pagan god, an idol, when he went there to worship. Now, this was his practice in the past, clearly. And likely, in the past, Naaman would have joined the king in worship to Rimon. And this is his expectation when he goes back home. 
And he's wrestling with that. He seems to be really concerned about it. In fact, it's repetitive. It's almost like he's nervous about it. He says, I go to the house of Rimon. I go to the house of Rimon. What, what, what about this? He seems to be really nervous about it. And so he basically asks Elisha for forgiveness ahead of time to go into the house of Rimon when he gets back home. And I love what Elisha does with it. He doesn't confront him. He doesn't yell at him and say, no way, man. You can't keep going to Rimon's house now. Rimon is deaf and dumb and cannot do anything. Rimon is no God at all. You just said you're going to worship Yahweh alone. you got to stay away from Rimon's house. But he doesn't say that. Rather, Elisha says, go in peace. And that statement is super interesting. Because it's not a full-fledged endorsement of Naaman's plan. But rather, he's allowing him some space to work out his salvation as he grows in it. He's saying, go in peace. You're going to figure out how all this works as you go. So as we consider this, verse, verse 17 and 18, or 18 and 19, we want to be really careful with it. We want to remember the context. Naaman has given repeated evidence of true conversion. So this is not a matter of conversion. It's a matter of sanctification. It's a matter of his growth in godliness. Remember, he has made repeated evidence of true conversion. Also notice that it's Naaman who brings it up. It's on his conscience. He has conviction in his own heart. And that is more evidence of the deep change that has happened in him. And don't forget that it's the master, it's the king of Syria who is the one who is going into the house of Rimon with idolatrous intent. Naaman is just going into the house to prop him up. And yet, even in going in just to prop him up, not to worship Rimon, but just to hold his master up while he worships him, he seems to be bothered with it deep down in his heart and he wants to address it now. And Elisha is very gentle with this young convert who is living in a difficult context. A difficult context where these matters are life and death. He potentially risks his life if he gets back home to Syria and says, Sorry boss, I'm not going to Rimon's house anymore. Oh, you're not going to Rimon's house anymore? Off with your head. That's a very real prospect for him. And Elisha is gentle with him. Here's the bottom line. There is, an, a, level, there is a level of patience and gentleness with which new converts need to be treated as they work out their salvation in their own messiness. You remember just recently we studied through Paul's letter to Philemon? And you remember how messy that situation was because he had this slave named Onesimus who had stolen something from him and run away, but had met Jesus now and was headed back to try to make things right. And Paul is writing to Philemon, really trying to teach him what he should do when, when Onesimus comes back. But in all of that letter, Paul doesn't express exactly what he expects him to do. He simply lays out gospel truths and trusts that, that Philemon, as a believer in Jesus, will do the right thing. Will do the right thing because he's got a new heart and he's got a new life and he's going to learn how to live it out. But Paul doesn't just tell him what to do. So rather than outlining every little detail of what to do and why, he just lays out these gospel principles and lets people figure out the implications of those principles as they grow. My guess is Naaman is going to grow out of this business of going to Rimon's house. 
that there's going to come a point as Naaman grows in his worship of Yahweh that he's going to say, I just can't go to Rimon's house anymore. But Elisha doesn't require that of him right off the bat. He's going to grow out of some things as he grows toward faithfulness in the Lord. All in all, when we think about Naaman, we've got a lot to celebrate. What was lost has been found. What was dead now lives, and that by grace alone. And though he is stumbling a bit, Naaman is, as he learns how to walk, he's begun this beautiful journey of faith. And Elisha is very gentle with him as he goes. Praise the Lord for this, right? Praise the Lord for this. And let's learn to be gentle and patient with young converts like Elisha was with Naaman. Arthur Pink says this about Naaman's story. He says, A new life within cannot help but be made manifest in a new life without. Catch that? If you've got this new life within, it will be evidenced in the way you live outwardly. And we're seeing that with Naaman. We're seeing that with him. He goes on and says, The order of truth we have been considering is deeply instructive. First, we have a cleansed leper that is a sinner saved by grace. Then we have an assured saint, I know. And now we have a voluntary worshiper. That's the unchanging order of scripture. I love that. Look at this journey and we have every reason to celebrate. And then we get to verse 20. And verse 20 starts with but. And the whole tone of the whole text changes there. The contrast between Naaman, the new convert, and Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, could not be more stark. While we rejoice over Naaman, the outsider who is brought in and given new life, we grieve over Gehazi and his failures that are on display here. He's an insider who should have known, who should have been growing, but he is not. He is way off base. So as much as we see the new life on display in Naaman, we do not see it on display in Gehazi. You should try sometime to read through the last half of this text today and count the lies that Gehazi tells in the passage. Count the number of times he just tells bold lies. From the start, it's ugly in verse 20. Starts with but and then gets worse. He invokes the name of the Lord in his plans. Remember when Elisha refuses the gift from Naaman, he says, as the Lord lives, I will take nothing from you. Gehazi says exactly the same thing. He says, as the Lord lives, I'm going to get something from that guy, right? He brings the name of the Lord into his evil plans, and that is ugly. So sad. Verse 21 amazes me. As Gehazi exploits Naaman's new heart to fulfill his own fleshly desires. He like, he like chases him down. And notice this, Naaman, Naaman's worried. Naaman's heart is sensitive. He's like, wait, wait, is something wrong? Is everybody well? And, and Gehazi says, oh yeah, everybody's well, but, but I need something. My master has sent me to you to get something from you. Gehazi's sin here follows the classic biblical pattern. He saw something... He wanted that thing, he took the thing, and then he hid it. He saw, he wanted, he took, he hid. That is a pattern that you see over and over and over in the scriptures. We see it from the very beginning with Adam and Eve in the garden. They saw that fruit, that it was pleasing to the eyes, and it was good for food, and it would make one wise. You remember that? They wanted it, they took it, and then they hid. You remember this? 
and the Lord comes into the garden, Adam, Adam, where are you? Same thing happens in Joshua, I think it's chapter 7, uh, after the conquest of Jericho. Remember when, when Joshua sent him in, he said, listen, we're going we're gonna to go take Jericho, but you take nothing for yourselves. The spoils all need to stay there. And there was one guy named Achan who took some stuff for himself. The same pattern is expressed in that text. He saw, he wanted, he took it, and he hid. We can see this in several places in the scriptures but we can also see it play out in our own lives, right? This is the pattern of sin on display in my life. I saw it, I wanted it, I took it, and I hid it. But the Lord knows. The Lord knows, and we cannot hide. Remember, the Lord comes into the garden. Adam, where are you? What have you done? The Lord brings Achan before the entire nation of Israel. What have you done? We cannot hide from the Lord. And here with Gehazi, Elisha knows what has happened. This is really interesting, especially when you compare it to the the scene with the Shunammite's um, child who died. You remember this? She shows up and she's all upset. And Elisha communicates, the Lord did not tell me about this. The Lord did not give me insight to what was going on. And yet here in this text, he tells Gehazi, my heart was with you as you were talking to him. Almost like somehow, spiritually, supernaturally, Elisha was able to see, see the exchange between Gehazi and Naaman. He knows exactly what happened. He knows the depths of, of Gehazi's sin. Why is Elisha, I guess maybe one of the questions we need to deal with here, why is Elisha so upset about all of this? Why is Elisha so upset that Naaman got couple of talents of silver, which really isn't vast riches, and a couple of changes of clothes. Like this, he didn't take $2.1 million from him. He took a few hundred bucks and two changes of clothes. And yet, Elisha is torqued about it, right? And the judgment that is going to come upon, upon uh, Gehazi for this is severe. And so we've got to ask ourselves, why? Why is Elisha so upset about this? There are two reasons. One, is because of God's grace. Gehazi is ruining the lesson that Elisha is trying to teach Naaman in this whole thing. He's making him pay for the gift. And it ruins the gift if you pay for it, right? Have you ever done that? Have you ever tried to do that? Like someone comes to you and offers you something great, and you're like, no, let me pay. Let me pay you for it. And you insist and insist and insist, and maybe even sneak money into their pocket somehow. You've ruined it. Or maybe you've been on the other end of that, where you're trying to do something just generous for someone, and they won't just receive the gift. You ruin it that way. And Gehazi is ruining the gift that God has given to Naaman. But there's another reason why Elisha is so upset. And it's because this is going to be a major stumbling block for Naaman, who is an infant in the faith. This is going to mess up Naaman's understanding now of how God operates. And that's serious. Like when we deal with infants in the faith, we've got to be super careful. Listen to the warning that Jesus delivers in Mark chapter 9, verse 42. He says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been tossed into the sea. Jesus says, you better be really careful about leading one of my little ones astray. It would be better for you if they tied a millstone around your neck and threw you into the lake. 
a serious business, and Gehazi is leading a little one astray. That's why it's so serious. And notice here that there is swift judgment for Gehazi. And it is poetic justice, is it not? Notice that what he said at the beginning of this is, I'm going to go get something from him. Yeah, you are. You're going to get something from him. You're going to get leprosy from him. That's what you're going to get from this man. It's poetic. So get this. Gehazi is a warning to the church. Gehazi is a warning to people like you and me. He is an absolute terrifying warning for us in this room today. He's a lot like Judas. He was on the inside, but he had missed the whole point. He was selfish, and he was lost. And the lesson for us is this. Proximity, mere proximity to the Word of God and the work of God does not guarantee a relationship with God. To say it another way, putting a mask on, spreading out, social distancing, coming to church when coming to church is hard, does not necessarily equal a relationship with God. Being close to the Word of God and the work of God does not guarantee a relationship with God. Gehazi was lost, and his lostness was on display. Same kind of contrast. His lostness was on display in a similar way as Naaman's foundness was on display. Church, we need to be warned about this. Romans chapter 11, verse 22 says this. This is the application today. Romans eleven twenty two says, Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Behold the kindness. Look, look, 2 Kings chapter 5, the second half of it. Behold the kindness and severity of God. Behold the kindness of God in Naaman's life, who was an outsider who was brought in. And this teaches us that there is hope for all kinds of people, does it not? It teaches us that there is hope for the pagan general of the invading army. That maybe, just maybe, God is going to rescue that dude and use him for his kingdom. There's hope for all kinds of people. It's one of the lessons we learn from Naaman's life. Another lesson we learn is that birth is messy. And learning to walk is clumsy. Right? This is, this is, it's kind of ugly here. As Naaman is trying to figure out, how in the world do I go back to Syria and worship God? I can't make my way to the temple ever. So give me some dirt and I'll offer sacrifices back home. And i got to go to Rimon's house, but I'm not going to worship Rimon. I'm just going to go in. I'm going I'm to plug my ears, la, 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 while, while it's all happening, something like that. He's trying to figure it out. It's messy, but it's glorious, is it not? Isn't that the way birth happens? It is messy and glorious, and we can't clean it up. We've got to rejoice over it, even in the mess. And when we learn how to walk, we're going to stumble, we're going to fall. Have you ever seen pictures of like a horse, a baby horse, or baby giraffe, or something like that? It's just been born trying to stand up and like can't, can't quite get its balance. That's what it looks like when people are converted. It's, it's, it's ugly sometimes. It's messy sometimes. But we must grow. And we, who watch this happen, must be gentle and patient with folks like Naaman in our lives. I want to be like Elisha and say to the new convert, go in peace. 
I want to be gentle. I don't want to offer the swift rebuke to the babe in Christ. I want to be gentle and walk alongside them and help teach them how to walk. And on the flip side of that lesson, when you're naming, don't abuse that kind of patience and gentleness as an excuse to just keep on stumbling. I I think there are some people that love the story of Naaman and the messiness of his conversion and his infant life, and they're like, I just want to live like that forever. Like, it's weird if a full-grown horse is stumbling around, right? We get worried if we go to the zoo and the full-grown giraffe can't quite stand up. Something's wrong then, right? We expect babes to stumble, but you don't stay a babe forever. So church, if you are Naaman, grow. Grow. Become mature. Get your feet under you by God's grace and walk with grace. Grow up. Naaman was an outsider who was brought in. Behold the kindness of God. Gehazi was an insider who was put out. Behold the severity of God. Church, do not bank on your proximity, your nearness to the word and work of God for your salvation. If your life is marked by fleshliness and worldliness, despite your church attendance, despite your familiarity with God's word, despite your record of faithful giving to the work of God, despite the fact that you hold some office or role in the church, if your life is marked by fleshliness and worldliness, it is likely that you do not know God. But the good news is this. Just like outsiders, there is hope for insiders as well. Just like outsiders who don't have any background at all, there is hope for insiders who just haven't gotten it yet. And the same hope is for both of them. It's the same either way. Repent and believe. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. If you're an outsider like Naaman, who's never heard about this before, repent and believe and receive the free gift. If you're an insider who's just been faking your way through it for 20 years, repent and believe and receive the free gift. It's the same either way, and so I would invite you to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today. And live out this new life that's yours in Christ. Let's stand together and pray. Father, thank you for time together and time in your word today. I pray that we'll receive this as as we should. Uh, For some, that we would receive it as encouragement. That there are marks of new life and there's growth in maturity. That we're learning to walk by your grace For others, it needs to be heard as rebuke, confrontation, conviction, that they have been banking on their proximity to you for their salvation. Life is marked by fleshliness and worldliness that is evidence that they don't really know you. Pray that you would grant by your grace repentance men and women and boys and girls would turn from their sins and that you would grant by your grace faith that there would be a deep trust in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and that by grace through faith men and women and boys and girls would receive 
the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray these things in his name.